Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash. I'm the host of the Articulate Fly, and we're joined today by Bo Beasley, outdoor writer and event promoter. How's it going, Bo? It's going great, Marvin. Thanks for calling. Well, it's funny. You are, have the honor of being the first repeat guest on the Articulate Fly. Well, you, you must be scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> well, it's great. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me back. Well, I appreciate you coming out today to talk about access. And folks, if you want to hear the episode that I recorded with Bo back in December, if you go to the podcast archive at thearticulatefly.com, uh, you can give that a listen. You'll learn more about um, Bo's background, and he'll talk, he talks a lot more about his um, experiences in his, as an event promoter. Uh, but before we jump to access, I want to make sure I give a shout out to today's sponsor. It's the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival, and that event is coming up here shortly, March 23rd and 24th in Plano, Texas. And if you will go to our events page, you can find out everything you need to know at thearticulatefly.com. Well, Bo, um, we've already done the first questions I normally ask my first-time guests, so we're going to do something a little bit different this time. So I know you started to kind of develop a niche writing uh, about access issues. How did you first become interested in access? Well, uh, oddly enough, I got a phone call uh, one day from an angler who uh, said, hey, some of my friends have uh, read your work and they recommended that I contact you. Uh, Could you help me? I'm being sued for fishing on public property. And I I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was in the days where you could kind of rerun your message again and again. So I played my the message back. And sure enough, this angler was telling me that he was being sued for fishing on public property and uh, knew my background as kind of an investigative outdoor writer and thought that maybe I could help him. So that's how I got involved. And uh, it involved a landowner. Um, who owned land on both sides of the Jackson River, uh, and an angler who had entered the river legally uh, at a public boat launch, floated down the river in a kayak, then got out of the kayak and was wading in a, in a pretty good uh, trout hole on the Jackson River. And the land, Jackson River, you know, river is kind of an innocuous term. In the state of Virginia, they can be really small or they can be as large uh, as the James. Um, So this was a a rather small river, a narrow part of the river, uh, probably not more than about 50 feet wide at its widest point in this particular case. And the landowner came over and accosted him, or I shouldn't say accosted in negative context, spoke to him and said, hey, you're, you're trespassing. And the angler said, well, I don't think so. And <clears throat> then got got in this kayak and went along. This same thing repeated itself a couple of times, and the angler contacted the game department in Virginia. And the game department and uh, the game warden he spoke to assured him that the state considered it public property. So this happened a few times, and eventually the landowner got angry and called the local sheriff's office, and they came out and, in fact, cited him for trespassing. And that's how I got involved, um, doing the research on that case on the Jackson River. And that's probably one of the things uh, that, that launched my career the most. And uh, although I had done other uh, uh, private property, public property conflict stuff in the past. I've written about water issues in West Virginia and some other places, which is why this person had heard about me. 
but that's how I got involved was that, that an angler called me and said, would you help me? And um, um, not to toot my own horn, but as far as I know, I'm the only <clears throat> writer outdoor or otherwise to ever get an interview with both the landowner and the angler um, to get their both their sides because the landowner just did not want to talk to to uh, the media. But uh, after a year of covering this issue, the landowner called me up out of the blue and said, I'm ready to talk if you're ready to to listen. And uh, I stopped what I was doing and started listening and uh, spent a great deal of time writing about the case. And that's how I got involved um, with uh, on this particular case on the Jackson River. And as a result of that case, I've been contacted many times by other anglers and now I'm actually being contacted by hunters too. Um, and not just from Virginia, from across the country, because this is a, a pretty tough topic and there aren't many people that write about it. And there aren't many people that take the time to do the hard investigative background work it takes to kind of get down to the nuts and bolts of the issue. Well, that's really interesting, and I know it is a super complicated issue, so I thought maybe we'd break it down today, and before we start talking about access to the water itself, we'd talk about land access. You know, at a very general level, how are federal lands managed? Well, you know, it's interesting, even within federal management themselves, when we when we talk about public lands, keep in mind there's a lot of public lands uh, designated federally. You have U.S. Forestry Service land. You have National Park Service land. You have Bureau of Land Management land. So there's millions and millions and millions of acres uh, that are owned by the federal government, much more out west than, at, than in the east. Probably the best-known public land in the area where we live here in the Mid-Atlantic that's the biggest and the best-known would probably be the Smoky Mountain National Park <clears throat> is an example of federally-owned land that's considered public. Uh, in Virginia, where I live, the Shenandoah National Park is probably one of the best places. Uh, but they're also, uh, you know, out west, it's more Bureau of Land Management property and also U.S. Forestry Service property. So there's even divisions among that. But generally speaking, the, the federal property falls underneath the category of the National Park Service, Bureau of Land Management, or U.S. Forestry Service. Uh, and sometimes those properties are right beside each other or, or uh, uh, intermingle. And then there are state properties owned by the individual states, uh, state parks for Virginia or Maryland or Delaware, as you can well imagine. On each individual state owns privately owned, uh, excuse me, state-owned parkland. So uh, federal lands are managed different than state lands because they obviously federal lands uh, overlap multiple states. Sometimes three or four states are involved. Again, thinking about um, Smoky Mountains, you know, on one side is uh, Virginia, and then the other parts are, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, North Carolina, and other parts are Tennessee. So uh, it, it it can it can vary. So there are multiple entities involved in land management, and that's one of the things that can make it confusing for people uh, that, are, that go outside uh, and, and visit uh, federal lands. 
One of the issues I'm dealing with now is an interesting case with a hunter that I have just begun research on in the crazy mountains uh, in Montana, where an elk hunter is uh, or has been successfully convicted of trespassing, or I should say pled guilty to trespassing uh, while he was elk hunting. And he had an elk permit, went on a um, United States Forestry Service approved trail that is in their records of maps. Um, And he was uh, confronted by a landowner. He'd gone there multiple times. It had been posted. And that's where people get confused. And he he claims to have talked to the... um, uh, the forestry service and was told that where he was going was public property. But here's the rub. Here's the dirty little secret that, that anglers and hunters need to know. When this angler in Virginia got sued by the landowner for going on, on river bottom that the state owned, guess what happened? State said, we're not involved. And when you go out on federal property, or you go out on property, you get charged with trespassing, as this gentleman did, and it appears to be federal property, and you get charged, guess what happens? Federal government doesn't come out to help you. Or if it is, I'm, I'm not aware of any cases. And I get regular, frequent, I shouldn't say regular, but not infrequent calls from people who get charged or run afoul of the law, and the state and the federal authorities, they don't come to defend you. Now, I can think of one case recently in Pennsylvania where they did, um, and it was in Pennsylvania uh, on, uh, I think it's uh, Big Creek, um, and somebody had stretched a, a cable across and said it was private property when it was uh, an assumed navigable river, and we can talk about that later on. And in this case in Pennsylvania, the state did defend uh, the angler and went to court with the landowner and won because it was the state's position that it was a state river. And uh, the state of Pennsylvania decided to intervene, but they're not required to. The angler that I mentioned in Virginia tried repeatedly to get the state of Virginia involved to defend what the state publicly advertised as public property, and they refused to get involved. And in the end, this anger who was on the Jackson River, the, the court was not determinative that the owner, that the quote-unquote landowner owned the river bottom. What the court found was he had what's called color of title. He had a better claim. And since the anger didn't claim to own the land, he was just standing on it while standing in the river. The landowner actually owned land on both sides. Since one had a claim of ownership and the other one didn't, he pretty much won by default. But it took years and a lot of money to get to that, to get to that point. And since then, the state of Virginia has changed their map. Uh, to say that this particular area has now been contested and should be avoided. So it can be, pardon the expression, a muddy issue. No, understood. And I guess, you know, that's a little bit about federal and state land management. You know, and we know obviously private property is private property. 
Are there any instances where someone can access private property to get to water without the owner's permission? Uh, there are rare cases, but when I tell people, when I, when I, um, <clears throat> lecture about this or talk about this at a club or at, a, at get hired to go to a, a show or something and talk about this, <clears throat> most of the time, I'd say 99% of the time, uh, you cannot cross private property to get to a public river. Let me give you a case in point. Let's say you're driving down the, uh, driving down the road and you want to fish in Mossy Creek or you, well, that's not really a good case because that's all private property. Although they let the public fish there. Let's say you want to, and I had this case, let's say you wanted to fish on the James river in Virginia and you see this great spot. I mean, this spot looks perfect for smallmouth bass and you want to pull your car off side of the road on the shoulder and walk down to the river. If that area that you're walking across is owned by a farmer, you cannot cross that property, even though you can see the river, and the river is, in fact, public property or, or falls underneath the public trust doctrine because it's a navigable river, you still can't cross private property to get to a public waterway. It's not any different than crossing through somebody's backyard to get uh, here's an example you go through a farmer's backyard to get to Yosemite National Park yes it's a national park but you can't walk across somebody else's private property to get there the one exception is if there is a conservation easement where uh, and the best example of that would be like um a light line or something where you're driving and you see all where all these trees have been cut so a power line can be put in uh, if there's an easement, then you can, uh, but there, by and large, you cannot cross um, private property to get to a public fishery or to get to public land. You have to access it through a public access point. There are exceptions, but they're pretty pretty few and far between. Another example that someone might not think of is when you go to the beach. There are places where, you know, you go to the beach, you just walk across the sand dune and get in. And it and you go, well, wait a minute, there's houses on both sides. How is it that I'm able to just walk through this? It looks like it's privately owned. In some cases, you have what's called a prescriptive easement. And that means due to historical use, the state or county or federal government has designated that even though it is privately owned, it has been used so long that it's considered a public um, access point. This case that I am investigating in Montana uh, covers that particular issue. The landowner claims that there is no easement. The forestry service, their maps indicate that there's a historical use, but as far as I have found, there's no written easement. There's no record of there being uh, an easement granted. So um, this always comes down to uh, doing research and it's a case by case basis. There is no broad overarching um, laws where a lot of this is concerned, um, specifically when it comes to access or when it becomes crossing private property, but it's kind of like what your mother told you. If in doubt, don't. Um, and don't assume because there's no signs that you can't trespass. Uh, 
because you actually can't trespass when you don't see a sign. Not all states are states that require the land to be posted. Uh, some states do, but just because you don't see a no trespassing sign doesn't mean that you that you may not be accidentally trespassing. So I always tell people, you know, if in doubt, don't. If you're pretty certain it's private property, you need to be asking permission. Um, and once you get that permission, I would want to get it in writing, right? And and some landowners will give you a, a pass and say, hey, or you could even write it yourself and say, would you be willing to sign this? This just says that I can come and go during certain, during certain times of the year. I've got your permission to be here as long as, you know, I follow different stipulations and but uh, most people <clears throat> run afoul of the law because they're careless or or they assume they live in Virginia and they assume everybody else's laws are the same as in Virginia or they're in Montana or they're in Colorado and then they go to Texas or they go to Wyoming or they go to Michigan and they assume that the law that the state that they're from is the same as it is in Michigan or in Ohio or Wyoming, and that's just not the case. Well, that's a really good point. And so I guess what a hunter, hunters and anglers do in terms of finding reliable information, because we've talked about how it's a case-by-case uh, analysis, you know, what's the fastest, safest way for hunters and anglers to find out what they can and can't do at a particular location? Well, <clears throat> a lot of the uh, it comes down to locality, but if you wanted a broad overview, there's some really good information put out by backcountry hunters and anglers as it comes uh, to access. So you could go to backcountry hunters and anglers and look on their website. It's a it's a good nonprofit organization uh, that's a, that advocates for uh, public access. Keep in mind though that that things change. Um, and what I would say is, let's hypothetically say you wanted to fish in Sullivan County, Tennessee, okay? Um, because, and the reason I know it's because I've done some casework there um, uh, with the Holston River in Tennessee. What I would start out with is the game department. And I would say, hey, or, you know, do you have any maps? Do you have any access points? Uh, and they may say yes, they may say no. Not every jurisdiction has maps that tells people where to go or, or where their access is. Now, federal land is a little bit better, uh, but often states don't provide maps. Um, but sometimes they do. They have general regulations. So I would start with the game department if you narrow it down to a certain state. If you really want to do, really do your due diligence, then I would contact the county game warden. So let's say you're going to go to Virginia or you're going to go to North Carolina and or, or Sullivan County, Tennessee. You call the game department in Tennessee and say, I want the phone number for the game warden responsible for Sullivan County. They'll give it to you. Now, it might take the game warden a day or two to call you back, or they might say, well, you know, can you tell us what it's about? And just say, hey, I just want to uh, confirm that there are no issues on this river as far as fishing in different places and this, that, and the other. So I would say contact the game department. If you want to go to the extra effort, contact the game warden and find out from them. And they might tell you, they might say, they may be very honest and say, well, listen, 
you know, the state says that this particular section of the river is public property, but we do have a landowner, Farmer Jones, that lives in this corner of the property there, and he really doesn't let people around there. So I would just say probably be a good idea to avoid that area. And it, it's just it's just that simple. What becomes confusing and, and difficult is both of these cases uh, that I mentioned with the hunter and with the angler, they both talked to authorities and both told them they could go there. So that's what that's what makes it makes it difficult. Um, but I would say the thing to do is to make sure you got a fishing license, make sure you have permission to be where you're at. Uh, if it's if it's a federal waterway, like a federal uh, state, excuse me, like a federally owned lake, you're, you're not going to have any problems. But what happens is when you're on a body of water, like a river or a creek, for example, is a good example, um, where it's not a navigable river, meaning it doesn't carry any kind of licensure from the federal government or from the state. Almost every state in the union, uh, if it's a non-navigable river and the landowner owns land on both sides, they in fact own the bottom of the river. Or they, uh, Here's the way I explain it to people. They don't own the water, but they own the land under the water. So when you're walking on the river bottom, you're walking on their land that just happens to have water on it. So it's kind of like the same concept as, and and I've had cases that I've worked on, like a a case that I worked on or did some research on in New York, where it um, was a, a navigable river, but you couldn't anchor up on it. That's really rare that's extremely rare and it was on the douglason uh river salmon river section in new york um and in that case they had anchored up and the landowner was able to prove that he had the rights to the bottom of the river and ironically it had been in their family since the colonial era uh but i kind of got off the point if a let's say you're in a balloon you're in a hot air balloon and you drop your sandbag over the top, over the side of the basket that you're in to stop your air balloon. And it lands in somebody's backyard. You didn't walk across anybody else's backyard to get there. But as soon as that sandbag touches in the backyard, you're trespassing on that person's property. Same thing with the river. If you're in a, in a drift boat or you're in a raft or you're in a, uh, any kind of vessel, a canoe or kayak, and you anchor up on the bottom of the river, as soon as it hits the bottom, you are in fact trespassing if it's private property. So people say, well, wait a minute, I'm I'm still in my boat. You're right. But if you're anchored up and that's privately owned land, then you are trespassing. Now, uh, I would say most people, um, a lot of people just don't care. Right. There's so much private property that people fish on uh, in rivers and and lakes that that people are unaware of because a lot of people just they just don't care. The problem is. Regrettably, and I'm going to take some of our brother anglers to task here, you know, I the the landowners that I talked to and I have spoken to a fair amount of them, you know, their complaint is pretty, pretty consistent. And they ask me, well, how would you like coming out in your backyard and finding trash all over the place? 
How would you like coming out and finding your fences open? Or worse yet, somebody's trampled over your fences to get to your property to fish. Or they're out behind your house using language that you would, you know, would would make Admiral Nimitz blush. And your kids or grandkids are in the backyard. So we as hunters and anglers need to act ethically and responsibly. And we need to call out other bad hunters and other bad anglers. And by and large, we do. I mean, nobody hates a dirty cop worse than than a good police officer. And no hunter or angler hates poachers more than we do. But we need to have an ethos of staying out of places we don't belong. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I always tell people that respect and permission go a long way, right? So we solve a lot of problems. Um, as we kind of, I guess, back up just a little bit and try to kind of look at the same framework for water access, is there a similar federal management regime for waterways as there are for uh, federal public lands? Yeah, it's, it's um, although it can also be confusing, um, the term that 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 is kind of the prevailing term for waterways uh for federal waterways especially is a term called navigability and whether a river is deemed navigable or not that determination is made by the army corps of engineers in the late 1800s the united states congress passed the rivers and harbors act And in Section 10 of that federal law, it designates the Army Corps of Engineers as the the body, a representative of the federal government, that determines whether a river is navigable or not. Now, let's let's talk about that for a minute. Navigable, well, let's go back even a little further. When you were in seventh grade, Marvin, or eighth grade, or when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I was probably, to be perfectly candid, more interested in looking at the redheaded girl sitting two aisles over than I was listening to my history teacher. That's just, I just didn't like paying attention in school. But if you had paid attention in school, particularly in the colonial era, you would have known that the main way people transported goods, whether it was tobacco or beans or cattle or horses, was on a river. And the rivers were our first interstates. And they were literally the roads of the country. And uh, that's why there was so much fighting uh, up and down rivers, because there were people had to be close to the river, quite frankly, to get drinking water uh, and for farmland. Um, and that's where mills grilled, uh, excuse, excuse me, um, would, uh, would grind grain, uh, into flour. So rivers have always been very important, whether it was in the 17 and 1800s in the United States or all the way back to the Middle East, right? Um, uh, the ancient cities were always built near harbors from a commerce standpoint. Okay. So why is that a big deal? Because those, the the government did not want people to put up a private toll. 
They did not want people to string a rope up across the Mississippi River and tell every farmer that came down, hey, guess what? You have to pay me a $5 toll to go down the river. So if it is a federal river or if it's a navigable river used for commerce or suitable for commerce, then it carries a what's called a federal navigational servitude, which is kind of a fancy word to say that the federal government claims to own the surface of the river. And if they own the surface of the river, then you cannot bar people going up and down and using the river like an interstate any more than somebody can string a rope across Interstate 95 and put up a private toll. Same concept. So once it has, once a river has a federal navigability rating by the Army Corps of Engineers, and you can go to their website to find out which rivers are navigable in your state, then those rivers, in most cases, if the surface of the river carries a federal navigable rating, the bottom of the river is owned by the states, the individual states. By and large, that's a pretty common thread, like the James River in Virginia. Feds own the surface, uh, state owns the bottom, because most of these states have assumption laws, which means they assume, they presume to own the bottom of the river if the feds own the state, excuse me, if the feds own the surface of the river. So there's navigable, which means it's big enough for commerce, then there's non-navigable. Now, a non-navigable river, obviously, is one that is too small. There are plenty of rivers in Virginia that are called rivers that are really creeks or big creeks. A non-navigable river in Virginia, North Carolina, Maryland, Tennessee, all those non-navigable rivers, their bottom land can be privately owned. In many instances, the landowner, or and, and you'll hear the term riparian, and what that means is it's part of the river, part of the land that runs alongside the river. They own to the center or the thread of the river, thread meaning backbone. And if the landowner owns both sides, then obviously he or she owns to half of the center. And if they own on both sides, then they own the bottom on both sides. Then the third category is assumed navigable. Now, what does assumed mean? It means that the Army Corps of Engineers has never really said definitively, we think this is a navigable river. But it's so big that nobody's ever gone to court over it. So it's assumed navigable, which people, which you can figure out what assumption means. People treat it as though it's navigable, even though it's never been adjudicated, which is just a fancy word of saying it's never been to court. So there's navigable, non-navigable, and assumed navigable. Most of the James in Virginia above the fall line is assumed navigable. They they don't they don't have uh, um, any court cases that they can think of, but it's so large and it's been used for commerce for so long, nobody's ever contested. But I can tell you now when you go up to the upper James, that's a totally different, you know, up to the tip top, that's a totally different ball of wax. And somebody might say, well, I don't understand what difference does it make to me as a fisherman whether a river is navigable or not. 
and and who cares? Well, here's here's a a real case that I had. I had a guy contact me that that was threatened with legal action by the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard told him, you will get a six-pack license. I don't mean six-pack for beer. I mean a, a license to carry anglers. You will get a United States Coast Guard captain's license in order to be a guide on this river. And the guy called me and said, hey, man, I, I'm being told I got to take this class, and I'm told that that I can't I can't guide anymore until I get it. I don't I don't know what to do. I can't, and the next school isn't for three or four months. I can't not work for four months. What well, what do I do? And I said, well, give me a day or two to to look into it. And I called the public information officer and I asked some very pointed questions. Please tell me where your Coast Guard investigator has jurisdiction on this section of the river because that's not navigable. And if it's not navigable, you don't have any jurisdiction there. So I want to know precisely what he's going to be charged with because I'm going to write about it. Guess what happened? All of a sudden, it went away. Now, I would imagine most law enforcement officers are trying to do the best they can, but you, as an angler, have a responsibility for knowing where you are and what you're doing. And in the end, the guy did not have to get um, a captain's license. He didn't even have a boat that, that had an engine. So, you know, it was kind of a kind of a moot point. But um, if the if you go to the Army Corps of Engineers website, you can break it down by state and it will tell you which rivers are navigable. And when you see those, most of those are going to make sense to you because you go, oh, yeah, that's a really big river, right? Um, for for your particular state um but there there are instances where states change their ratings so uh, so um the the navigable rating for for the feds is done through the army corps of engineers but certain states have different laws that that they deem something navigable even if the feds don't um, the state of Texas is an example where if the river is 30 feet wide for a certain distance, they consider it navigable, even though the federal government doesn't, which means they consider, you know, uh, uh, public property. So and that becomes pretty important if you're if you're in Texas, because there's not as much uh, public access. So your first resource would be your state agencies and then the, the federal agencies. Now, let me give you one more little tip about navigability that will keep people out of trouble. And I have this all the time. A guy will call me up and say, hey, I'm told I can't fish here because it's not navigable, but it's clearly navigable. I can float my kayak on it. That does not mean it's a navigable river. So just because you can float your kayak or canoe on it does not automatically grant you access. And I would warn your listeners, there are a lot of keyboard uh, experts out there, people that get on the uh, uh, web or, or make a blog post or make all kinds of pronouncements about what they know, and most of the time they're wrong. And I have people not infrequently send me information or ask me questions, or sometimes now because of Facebook, they'll 
an angler that I know or a hunter that I know will read an article and then they'll just put my name in the comment section because they flag it because they want me to read it and then follow up on it. I had a case in Georgia recently with a kayaker and I was appalled. Uh, he was on private property. The game warden came out and warned him and ended up writing him a ticket. And I was completely appalled by the unbelievable foul language and the unbelievable um, uh, verbiage that was used against this conservation officer because he wrote this young man a ticket for fishing. And, you know, there were comments like, well, at least he wasn't doing drugs. Why can't you just leave him alone? He was just fishing. Well, right. But he was breaking the law while he was fishing. So be very careful when you read an article about an angler or hunter and and it appears that they are, you know, getting railroaded. Remember, uh, there are two sides to every story. My, my father-in-law was an expert in the Middle East. And then one of his sayings was there are 22 sides to every story. And I can tell you when it comes to access and use, there are a lot of different stakeholders. And you need to very carefully read where you're getting your information from. And if you're getting your information from an advocacy group, chances are they're going to slant it towards their particular uh, bent, whether it's a public access group or whether it's a landowner association use. So just use some common sense and just remember it for yourself. If you don't remember anything else, if you're fishing somewhere and you get approached by a landowner or especially a law enforcement officer, and they ask you to leave, leave. Don't stand there and argue with them uh, unless you are prepared to take the consequences. If you, um, and I've had cases where people say, well, I, you know, I was out there and I know I was right. Okay, then take the deputy's card. Take his or her card, Deputy Johnson's card, or whatever the officer's name is, and say, well, you know, Deputy Jones, I think you're wrong. I'm, I'm almost 100% certain this is public property, but I'm going to follow your lawful order. I'm going to leave, but can I follow up with you later? And 99 times out of 100, you know, it's going to go really, really well for you if you just take their card and leave. Because that deputy that you're dealing with, most of these rural areas are, are patrolled by deputies or in some cases state troopers. They do not know the local laws. They're going to get on the radio and call a game warden or whatever, and the chances are the game warden's either going to be not available or on the other side of the county. Or in some cases, like in my, in my state of Virginia, a game warden may have three or four counties and just one game warden supervise the whole area. So take their card and then follow up later on. Now. If you are on public property and you get accosted by a landowner and you get cussed at, he's throwing rocks at you, I can assure you there is remedy. There is, you can take legal action against those people. So if you're a landowner, uh, if you're an angler and you get cussed at by some guy and he's really nasty at you, pull out your cell phone, take a picture of his license plate and then leave. Or take a picture of the guy who's screaming at you, take a picture of his license plate. And then leave. And then you can follow up yourself. You have legal recourse, too. 
you can call the authorities too. In Virginia, you have a constitutional to write a, a constitutional hunt and a constitutional right to fish. It's written right in the state uh, state charter. So don't think that you don't have legal recourse too. You cannot harass a hunter or an angler who is lawfully hunting and fishing. That's part of the reason that you buy a hunting and a fishing license is to help fund those the access points and to fund game wardens so we can try to prevent people from inadvertently cutting off and there are people that try to cut off public access. Well, that's great. Let's just back up a little bit. We were talking about navigable, non-navigable, and assumed navigable, and we were talking a little bit about the state overlay on that. And one thing I wanted to touch on before we moved on is we hear about King's Grants. And, you know, obviously being from the Commonwealth of Virginia and you live there now, you know, I'm familiar with them. And you talked a little bit earlier on in the interview about um, some of the colonial uh, areas and waterways. And so I was wondering if you could share with our listeners just briefly what King's Grants are and how they affect access. Sure. Um, thanks for thanks for bringing me back, uh, back in on that, Marvin. Uh, uh, so uh, people will hear the term King's Grant or they will hear the term Crown Grant as in royalty, king and, and crown. Uh, how does that affect access? Well, I live in the great state of Virginia, uh, one of the 13 original colonies, home to the mother of presidents. And uh, being we are a, a colonial or, or one of the 13 original colonies, a lot of the way our country was developed was the King of England would give land grants to people because you, you can't own something if you can't control it. So the King of England said, well, you know what? Uh, we're going to send some colonists over to populate this area, and uh, we're going to give certain people tracts of land if they will agree to go live there. Well, they did. And you would get a document or a grant saying that you owned it. I live uh, for a long time. I worked for Fairfax County Fire and Rescue Department. That entire county was one huge land grant to Lord Fairfax. So what happened is people would buy their property or get their property from the King of England, and then they would sell it to someone else, and then they would sell it to someone else, and they would sell it to someone else, and with uh, with property rights, you get all the ownership rights of the original landowner. Well, these grants, these king grants and crown grants, and not just Virginia, states like North Carolina, South Carolina, Louisiana, Florida, Texas, and uh, not just England. When I deal in when I deal with land disputes in Louisiana, I'm dealing with French land grants. When I am doing research on Texas, I'm dealing with Spanish land grants and the same thing in Florida. So it's kind of cool because we see these these uh, European colonial powers, France, Spain, and Great Britain all vying to try to exert control over the New World. And each of these kings would give land grants. Now, how do, why do we care about that today? Because remember I said that states often had assumption law. And that assumption law assumes that if the federal government owns the surface, that they own the bottom. Well, the state of Virginia did the same thing, and they had an assumption law, and it said all land 
not otherwise deed or conveyed by special grant, is now owned by the state of Virginia. All subaqueous land. But the verbiage in the law says, unless otherwise conveyed. Now, what does that mean? That means unless somebody else owns it already. So when these laws, a lot of these laws were passed, these assumption laws were passed, really wasn't very populated, so there weren't very many people that complained or there weren't very many people that had claims. But there were some, and these people owned the property. But in order to claim a crown grant, and I hear this regularly, oh, I have a crown grant. Well, you can't just say, oh, I have one. What you have to be able to do if you're going to exert ownership of a crown grant in the state of Virginia, and I presume in other states, is to show an unbroken chain of title from your piece of property all the way back. Now, Marvin, when you and I uh, bought our house, we either bought it from an existing homeowner or we bought it from the county or the city or municipality that we lived in. When we bought it, we actually got title insurance and we bought a specific piece. We just didn't say, well, Marvin, your house kind of sort of sits over there in this one lot. No, it's very specific. It's very much X and Y axis. This particular point of this particular plot of land in this particular county on this particular day. Well, it was the same way with the crown grants. They would give their original piece of property, and then it would be subdivided. Now, here's the case. In order to claim a crown grant ownership, which means your claim supersedes the state of Virginia by their own law, and that's what these landowners were arguing, before the state of Virginia says they own it, I owned it first. And in multiple cases that I have looked into uh, in Virginia and in North Carolina, they won. Uh, excuse me, New York, they won on that claim because they were able to prove either a reasonable doubt, color of title, or in the case of New York, they proved that they owned it prior, that the state of New York ceded it to them. But in order to prove this claim, you have to have an unbroken chain of title. Now, I don't know, what, in your history, when you sat through seventh and eighth grade history, I was still looking at girls instead of paying attention to – we had this thing in Virginia where I live between 1861 and 1865, a little thing we call a civil war. And during that period, many, 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 many courthouses were burned down. Well, what were in those courts? Those court records held land titles and deeds, and many of the people's records – were burned then, and they had no way to prove whether they owned it or whether they didn't. So they would have to start over. But it broke the chain of title. So you couldn't pr you could prove, yes, I have property in Sullivan County, Tennessee, or or in Hope County, North Carolina, and it was issued on this date, 1841. Well, that's great, 1841. But the state's assumption law was in 1820, 20 years earlier. Do you have anything prior to 1820? Well, well, no, but here where I have to see, here's an older deed from, from you know, the 1700s. We'll use that as an example. And see, it's the same county. It's the exact same area. Right, but what about the deeds between your deed 
and this crown grant from 1743. Well, I don't have that. Well, then you don't have an unbroken chain of title. So I have landowners on a not infrequent basis quickly say to me, oh, this this doesn't apply to me because I have a crown grant. And I always ask them, well, what king did it come from? Because most of them are just throwing it out there. They don't they don't know. They don't have any idea. Uh, but researching a a claim of a crown grant is no small thing. It costs thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars because even in my state of Virginia, th- this is a real – I'm a real history buff. Like I said, I, I didn't pay attention in high school, but I really enjoyed it once I got out. And in Virginia, it's not only more complicated because West Virginia used to be Virginia. So if you're doing a claim for Virginia, it could be that you have to go to West Virginia to find the records because West Virginia was part of Virginia until the Civil War broke out. So it, it's really uh, interesting. Now, this can also, in, that, in, in these cases of a Crown Grant, it tends to go to the landowner's benefit if they can prove it. But the opposite is also true. I mentioned in the state of Texas, the great state of Texas, that if a river is 30 feet wide for a certain distance, I can't remember off the top of my head, it's considered a navigable river, and the bottom can be publicly owned. If it's less than 30, then it's non-navigable, but there are exceptions. If your land, let's say your river is less than 30 feet wide, we'll just throw out a number, we'll say it's only 20, and you go, ha, it's only 20 feet wide, that means it's non-navigable according to Texas state law, and I can keep people out of here, I'm good to go. Well, guess what? Not if it came underneath the Spanish land grant, or it came underneath a Mexican land grant, because Spanish land grants, they they often held it in public trust. And if your grant came from Spain in a certain particular county in Texas, when the Spanish were overrun by the Mexicans, the Mexican government said, well, you know what? Uh, this this uh, public ownership of this particular river bottom, if it was good enough for Spanish, the crown, uh, the Mexican uh, government is going to recognize it too. Well, guess what? When Texas took over the property, they also recognized Mexican law, just like the Mexicans did with the Spanish government. And they too said, well, even though it's less than 30 feet and it's technically it's non-navigable, we consider it public property. And the Texas government recognizes it. Now, you really have to do your homework to try to find those places. But but I find it fascinating to do the research. So in short, crown grants are grants issued by different governments, almost, you know, strictly European, generally European, that give the person ownership not only of the river bottom and this People will blow some people's mind, but in cases that I did in Virginia, not only do they own the river bottom, it literally says in their grant that they own the fish. And if it was land, they owned the wildlife on the land as long as it was on their property. So that may sound crazy, but that's the way those particular grants were written. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess to sort of summarize, you know, we kind of work through navigable, non-navigable, assumed navigable. We've talked a little bit about the land restrictions. 
I, I guess a rough rule of thumb is if a fisherman can access a particular body of water, um, they can't cross private property without permission or an easement, um, or they have to use a public right away. Is that kind of a rough, good rule of thumb? Yes. And, and these change from state to state. Um, in some states, if a bridge crosses a river, you can enter it there. Right there, you can drop your canoe right off side of the right off side of the bridge and enter there and go anywhere you want up and down that waterway, as long as you don't get out of you don't get out onto what's called upland property. And upland property just means property above the high water mark. Uh, in many states, so there's a high water mark, which is where the river normally is, is at its highest during the spring during runoff, and then a low water mark would, would be obviously July, August, in places like Virginia, where the river is at its lowest ebb. The, and many, many law, many states own the land between the high water mark and the low water mark. Even if they don't own the riverbed, they own between the high water mark and the low water mark. You will um, almost always be trespassing if you get out of your kayak or canoe or you wade out of the river and get above the high water mark. Um, so check with your local state locality. I, I know of the case of a, uh, of a guide I know quite well who was accosted by a landowner because he was fishing, believe it or not, in Lake Erie. And he's standing in Lake Erie and he, with a client. He's actually guiding for steelhead. Landowner comes out and says, hey, you're trespassing. And he says, uh, no, I'm not. I'm standing in Lake Erie. And the guy said, but yes, you crossed my private property to get here. No, I didn't. I walked down a stream bed that is owned by the state. And he said, well, listen, I, you're going to leave or I'm going to call the law. And this guy had done his homework, was very professional and said, you know, sir, I'm here with a client. I'm guiding people right now. We're catching fish. But I know the law. Why don't you call the police? As a matter of fact, when you call the police, ask for this particular game warden. And guess what happened? The guide was right. He had accessed it according to Pennsylvania state law, was completely legal and right for him to be there. Even though had he walked five feet out of the water, he'd literally been in this guy's backyard. Now, the good the kind of the silver cloud to the lining was game warden comes out, explains it to the landowner. And I'm happy to say after it was over, the guide handled it so well that the landowner said, well, you know what? The next time you want to come back with clients, why don't you just park across the street, and walk through my yard? True story. Yeah. As, so, we, as we say, yeah, respect and permission go a long way, right? Respect uh, and permission go a long way. But in this particular case, the, the angler and the client uh, accessed it from uh, a state-owned stream bed and went into basically what is Lake Erie and then walked a couple hundred yards to this particular spot. But they were standing on the bottom of Lake Erie, so uh, which is public property. So um, in each case, you just need to take it uh, – a case by case, but every state is different. But yes, now, what are some places that you're for sure safe? You're for sure safe if it's a state-owned boat ramp, a 
if you get there and you see a sign that says, you know, uh, state-owned boat ramp, and there'll be some kind of seal or imprimatur from the state. If you see a, um, uh, a U.S. Forest Service or a National Park Service sign that says, this is a designated campground, uh, then you're, you're safe to enter the water there if there's some kind of marker there that indicates that it's uh, owned by the federal government. So uh, I would say if you see a state marker, if you see a federal marker or a boat ramp, and most of those are easily found on state maps um, or contact your game department. But I would warn you that those access points are often only 30 or 40 feet wide. So if you're fishing along, if you're fishing there and then you wade down or you leave that particular ramp and you walk 100 yards downstream, but you're not in the river itself, you're you're kind of walking along people's, you know, the side of the river, fishing as you go along, then you're probably trespassing. So those access points for the boat ramps are usually only 40, 50 feet wide. Um, it's been my, my experience. Yeah. And in terms of the stream bottom, I mean, we've talked a little bit like this, like I know, for example, in Colorado, you can't put your boat anchor down, right. Uh, on private property. Um, even if the river is navigable, I think you talked about a little bit earlier, kind of, and obviously anglers need to do their homework, but what's the general rule of thumb? Cause my general impression is that's kind of the exception more than the rule. If you lawfully access the water. Yeah, if you lawfully access the water, you can generally go um, anywhere you want. But you, but you need, again, you need to check with your particular state, and you need to find out what your state's law are uh, is, because every state is different. And you can literally cross from one state to the other, uh, and the laws change while you're floating down the river. So you need to know where you are. You need to be aware of what you plan to do. Uh, but just a little bit of research, 20, 30 minutes worth of research uh, will save you a whole lot of headaches. The other thing, obviously, uh, and this is where I'm going to put a pitch in for uh, some of my brothers in the fly fishing community, this is a great reason why you should hire a professional guide. If you're out on a river with a professional guide, I can assure you that guide is not going to take you to fish on private property without permission. So if you're with a guide, 99.999% of the time, you don't have anything at all to worry about. So going out with a guide and floating a river or even being on private property, if you're with a guide that has permission, is a great way to just kind of, you know, alleviate that headache. Got it. And, I, you know, obviously these access issues are becoming more and more prominent. Um, can you kind of briefly let us know if there's some issues that we ought to be paying attention to? Like, I know there's stuff going on in Utah, um, you know, the Jackson yeah, River. Yeah, there, there is. Yeah, the Jackson River yeah, seems to be a favorite. But if you want to just maybe give us kind of a high level of some of the hot spots on access, that'd be great. Yeah, there, there's a couple of uh, issues. There's some pending court work, uh, court actions out uh, in Utah. Uh, with some of the different rivers out there, and they've, they've had some rulings that have been favorable um, uh, to, uh, to anglers uh, in Utah. There's a case I'm looking at right now that I'm concerned about um, or that I'm looking into uh, 
with uh, the state of Louisiana. And in the state of Louisiana, there's a case going on right now where um, someone is um, challenging the ruling of a river, whether a river is in fact a river or whether it's a lake. Now, this, this Louisiana says it's a lake, and the landowners adjacent to it say it's a river. L- lakes in, in Louisiana, lake bottom in Louisiana is owned by the state. River bottom, in many cases, is not. This has been called a river. Excuse me, it's been called a lake, but it's almost like when we say it was assumed navigable. People said it was a lake. It was called a lake, but it's never been legally designated a lake. So the landowners, some of them are making a claim that it's in fact a river, and they're pressing the issue. And the problem for Louisiana is this uh, particular case happens to deal with uh, uh, waterfowl hunting. And if this case uh, is decided in the, in the favor of landowners, then that particular case, uh, there's going to be a lot of public hunting that goes away. So that particular case in Louisiana, uh, I'm looking at uh, the case in Utah that I'm looking at in the Crazy Mountains and Sweetgrass, Montana, I'm looking into. Um, I'm doing some preliminary research on that, and I hope to have a major article come out that, on that later uh, later this year. Um, I just finished. Um, I haven't written about it yet, but did investigating work, investigative work in Westchester, New York, where a duck hunter had been hunting on an island for years and years and years. And then one day while he was out hunting, he got run off by the local constabulary there because they said he could not discharge his firearm within the city limits. And he's like, well, what are you talking about? You, you know, I'm out here on an island a long way from the city. But what he didn't know was the city charter included those islands. So if you can't discharge a firearm within 300 yards or 400 yards or 1,000 feet, I think was the case, inside the city limits, then you can duck hunt all you want. You just can't ever fire your gun. <laughs> and how this affects Hunter in other ways is if you're if, if you, um, hunt your archery hunter, that arrow is considered a projectile, so you can't fire your bow either because that arrow is considered discharging a projectile. So the same law would apply to you. So these outlet islands that people have hunted and fished on, they're now finding out that, hey, I really can't hunt there or I really can't fish there uh, because it's it's private property or state or county ordinance or city ordinance prevents me from from discharging uh, discharging a firearm. So there, the the cases that that I just mentioned, the one in Utah, uh, the one in uh, Louisiana, and then the one out in Montana uh, with the elk hunter is they're all things that I'm that I'm looking at. But I would just say that uh, the Utah Stream Access people have done a pretty good job of keeping people. Um, contained and uh, being respectful of uh, while they're waiting for the courts to make a decision. And these cases can have long lasting effects and it can affect um, 
not just that one river. If that particular case has uh, pending issues on other rivers, then it could affect other waterways. This, so that's why uh, so many people are watching these different cases. Um, what I would say to people is they need to be engaged and they need to uh, join organizations, at least to stay informed. Um, Trout Unlimited, uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Bonefish Tarpon Trust, they're all organizations that uh, they don't necessarily, you know, Trout Unlimited is not an organization that's interested in access, right? They are interested in conservation. So uh, oftentimes they will keep up with cases and they don't take a position, um, but they are aware because if uh, we lose access to something, then you don't have the opportunity to do conservation work with donated money or federal money and that kind of thing. So whether it's backcountry hunters and anglers or bonefish tarpon trust, where they may, like I, I wrote about some of the licensing requirements out uh, in the Bahamas and how conservation was being used as a leverage to help people purchase licenses. But then when you investigate it, they can't tell you or show you how that license is going to be used for conservation work. Uh, they say that it's catch and release, but then you can keep a fish. Well, if you can keep a fish, then it's not catch and release. So, um, but the good thing is, whether it's the Bahamas or whether it's your individual state, you as a citizen of the United States have a right to contact your legislator, whether it's a state delegate, a state senator, a congressman or a federal senator to say, hey, I am concerned about this issue, whether it's access, whether it's funding for a particular issue, or whether you want to complain that you don't want some dams uh, license renewed. Or um, I just saw a case where people, you know, in the conservation community, they're all for windmills. They just think windmills are the greatest thing in the world because, you know, hey, it's it's a windmill. It's going to be great for electricity. We're going to be able to get all the fossil fuel, except windmills are lethal for birds. They kill all kinds of birds. Thousands of birds are killed by windmills. And I have come across cases where uh, people are, are um, objecting to windmills being built. And it's people that you would think would normally be interested in windmills, but since they want to put it in a park, they think it's going to destroy the view shed. So then they're not, then, then all of a sudden they're not interested in non-renewable energy because it's one of the NIMBY issues, right? Not in my backyard. Everybody wants something done, but they don't want to, you know, have a whole lot of skin in the game. So I would just tell people on different access issues or any issue. Uh, one that I'm watching that I really I have not written about because it's a big topic and there are a lot of uh, a lot of research that I would have to do and I just haven't delved into it a whole lot is the whole issue of the pebble mine in Alaska. Um, that may not be an access issue, but it's certainly going to be a use issue. If they open up a giant open uh, pit gold mine in Bristol Bay, 
if it fails, it's going to have a huge impact. So we as hunters and anglers and just everyday ordinary Joe Blow citizen need to be engaged and need to take note of things that are important to us. And if hunting and fishing is important to you or access is important to you or making sure that your children or grandchildren have the opportunity to go hunting and fishing, then you need to try to stay informed and stay up on these issues. And one of the ways people do that is by listening to people like you, Marvin, listening to different podcasts and staying engaged in different publications that um, talk about those particular issues. Well, I really appreciate you spending some time with me. I mean, this is a super complicated issue. I think we could probably do a podcast on this once a week for a couple months. Um, and we, <laughs> we still wouldn't be done. Um, where can people find you on the internet if they want to reach out to you and where can they find some of your articles? Um, I've done some work with, uh, uh, work with American Angler, uh, and other national magazines. I did, um, um, some work, I've done some work with, uh, Midcurrent on my issues, uh, dealing with the Bahamas, but if they wanted to uh, go to my website, it'd be the easiest way to, to reach me or get through to me. And that's www.bobeasley, B-E-A-U, B-E-A-S-L-E-Y.com, BoBeasley.com. And I would also say that readers are pretty important when it comes to publications. And if you as a reader are interested in access issues, then, you know, send an email to your favorite magazine and say, hey, when was the last time you guys did an access and use piece? Or, you know, when are we going to read more about uh, an issue on this particular topic on this particular river. And I can assure you those magazine editors, they read the comments from their readers. Um, and I would just say, uh, and in return, you need to be subscribing to these magazines because, uh, taking on controversial issues, uh, can be, can be a, a hard thing to do, but, you know, we need to stay informed. But to answer your question, if they wanted to contact me, they could just do it through my website, whether their club or wants me to come give a talk or um, whatever the case might be. Um, I'd be happy to do that. But you're right. It is a complicated issue. And um, when I go to a particular area, I try to give them all sides of the story. And that often takes time and takes a little effort. Well, I really appreciate you spending some time with me, Bo. And folks, I appreciate you listening uh, tonight. Um, and it would be great. You'd really help us out a ton if you would leave a review in iTunes and help us with our our advertisers if you would subscribe in the podcatcher of your choice. Uh, thanks, thanks again, Bo, and tight lines, everybody. Mm-hmm.